offerings of tithes. So uh, as you go in or out, we just ask you to do that. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, we thank you for so many things as we ask that you take what little bit we give back to you, Father, and ask that you multiply more to it and spread it across this country and this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And we pray that you would use these funds to extend your kingdom here and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Today we'll be in the book of 1 Timothy. Chapter 3. Lord God, our Father, in your word, you've given us a light in a dark place. Lord God, you build us up, you remake us. You conform us to the likeness of Christ, not just in our emotions, Lord God, but in our actual understanding of who we are in the context, Lord God, of your creation. And so we pray that you would build us up in this knowledge and these things that you've given us, that you might make us strong, that you might give us everything that we need for a life of hope and faith. And we thank you for this great blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, this sermon will be a little bit of exegesis of very common passages. You know, you have to go over this kind of thing at least once a year. It's talking about the form and structure for the church. These days, the error or the thing that people fall into is not getting over-structured in church. It's getting way under-structured in church. Now, if some of you come from a particular background within that narrow uh, avenue of churches that are hyper-structured, that might seem false. But in the general span of American Christianity and Christianity around the world, the problem tends to be too little structure, not too much. You know, Presbyterianism is very different from the Roman Catholic Church, where they've got a very strict order on everything, and they've got a thousand different rituals that they do, and they've got clothes that they wear, and they've got a certain hat they have to wear, and all of these different things. But those are not things from Scripture itself. Those are the accoutrements of human culture that have come in and gotten between the people and their relationship with God. But that doesn't mean that there's not stuff in here from God. One of the things that we were talking about this morning in uh, Mark's Bible study is that uh, uh, the tendency of churches to just create themselves wantonly and without a great deal of consideration is one of the primary dangers of today's American Christianity. In other words, not too little religion, but possibly too much. What I mean by that is anybody that can rent a building can start a church. But in Scripture, God was very careful to lay out a specific plan and a specific schematic 
like an architect, he planned the church and the way that it exists through time, not only so that it will survive time, but that it will be a benefit and not a burden to the members of individual churches. Many times I've griped and complained to you about in my upbringing, seeing way too much church, not not enough church. And one of the things I saw is how bad it really goes when churches just make themselves up with very light regard for the word of God. The people that suffer are all of the people that attend the churches. In the Thursday evening Bible study, we've been going through some of the epistles, some of the writings of the Apostle Paul. And one of the things that we find there is that him trying to regulate and fix and deal with problems in the churches is an almost constant theme. When you get into 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he actually has a battle in the scriptures where he's writing about a group that he calls the super apostles. I'm not making this up. The super apostles. And he's correcting the people because these super apostles have come in ordained by no one, chosen by no one, guided and scrutinized by no one. And the people are just willy nilly following them away just because they've got great charisma. And the Apostle Paul has to call them back to the apostles that have actually been ordained and chosen by Christ. Because he says the place that these people take you is not to Christ, but to themselves. Now, one of the things about that, and I know that you all have read these things and you all have an idea of them already, but just about every year, churches bring in new deacons and elders. Now, every year, this church has at least one congregational meeting where we do that very thing. Now, the standards in Presbyterianism, frankly, are not low. You remember how a couple of hundred years ago, the largest denominational setting, the biggest church, if you will, in the United States, when even there were only 15 or 20 of those states, was Presbyterianism. But by 1900, it was not. And one of the reasons is the slowness of the Presbyterian church in being able to develop and put forth ministers and elders and deacons to handle churches. What I'm saying is if we've got a weakness, that's it. We're slow. We're not fast. It's also a strength. Now, in the old frontier, especially as, as America was reaching out toward California, there were a lot of different groups that could make up pastors like that. You see a young guy, he's kind of good looking, he's got a Bible, he knows how to read, you're a pastor now. You can plant a lot of churches that way quick, right? But those churches tended to be incendiary and collapse upon themselves by the moral or spiritual failures of their leadership. In other words, these verses weren't taken very seriously. Those men weren't tested and those men weren't trained. And if you go to a church and it seems lively and it seems wonderful, but it only lasts one generation and then it disappears from the earth, no matter how good it seemed at the time, that was not a great church. This church has been here how long, Jack? 50 years yet? Uh, 45. 45 years, but it's part of a denomination that goes back 500, which is part of a church that's been around for 2,000. And my prediction is it'll be around for another 100 150. How long should a church last in a specific place or a specific time? As long as God's using it in that specific way at that specific place. In other words, conditions can change, but the gospel in the church doesn't. So once a church is planted, hypothetically, it should last forever. Here it says, this saying is trustworthy. 
1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an, us, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. We start there with aspiring. The Bible assumes that most of you are going to aspire to this. And it makes it out as a good thing. But there are qualifications there. You remember that in this ecclesiology, in this interpretation, no one can serve in an office of this church unless they are selected and elected by the vote of the congregation themselves. This really does put us in a remarkably different place from 80, 90% of the churches out there. In the scriptures themselves, in the book of Acts, early in the book of Acts, when the apostles were doing all the work, there were some changes going on in the church and some struggles with the people, and God actually told them what to do. And so they told the people, you go and choose men from among yourselves, men full of the Holy Spirit, and we will ordain them over you. From the very beginning, the people had to choose their ministers. I want this to, to, to sort of get a grip on you because I, I've seen this happen. When people first hear this, it sounds a little crazy. How can all these people choose their own pastors? Pastors are up here, right? People are down here. Well, that's the first thought in your mind to be eliminated. Pastors are supposed to be, <laughs> I'll give a supposed to in there, be given special gifts by God in the areas of preaching and teaching and also spirituality and even morality. Special gifts. Of, what gifts and morality? I know you pretty well now. You ain't that moral, right? Morality so that they do not fall into troubles that would bring the entire ministry into the church, into the disdain of other Christians and of the world. In other words, special protections from falling into certain kinds of problems that tend to fall make trouble right? Really, supposed to be special in that way, but not different, not a different salvation, not a different mount of grace, not a special status, not a special holiness, a common person who's been called to a distinct office. And so when the minister is called, he's called from the people elected by them as the representative of the people themselves of this church before God, but the minister is also the representative of the wider church, what we call the Presbytery, and the Catholic church outside of this one. So I want to make that distinction, right? The pastor is not just a member of the church. They're also a member of the wider church outside of these doors, one of the reasons that that has to be and that we see that come up in places like Acts chapter 15 is if the pastor is only accountable to the people of the church, it is an inordinate influence that can actually bring bad things into the church instead of good. So the pastor, kind of by necessity in Scripture, he's not just accountable to you. He's accountable to the other pastors. And they can pull his chain and ring his bell if they feel like it needs to be done. To some people, that makes them feel unsafe, right? You mean some other pastors have authority over my pastor? Could other pastors actually step into my church and call my pastor out of there? They can. 
And the Apostle Paul does it in the Bible just about every other page. He's basically traveling the world, shaking up churches, sometimes going up to pastors and saying, you need to straighten out. And Peter does it, and the churches do it to each other. And that kind of interchurch accountability is what brings a structure that makes a church survive the hundred and the thousand years instead of the 20 and the 30 years. They spring up quick. They spring up quick. But as soon as things get hard, things get hard, they fade away. And so who is supposed to say whether or not this overseer is qualified for this position? Does it seem like in the text that you think it's somebody that knows them? It's an obvious question, right? Should it be a board that's probably never met him? But they got some letters, and he's got a degree from a fine, reputable university. (laughs) Who's going to know if he's hospitable? Isn't that a powerful word? Hospitable in the Greek has an alignment with the idea of kindness and generosity coupled together with the idea of to people you don't know or people that aren't of your kind. Above reproach, the husband of one wife. You know this was written in Bible times, right? Anybody in the Bible married to more than one wife? It's almost like a scandalous question, right? But I believe in the whole Bible, not just the parts I like. What about Solomon? He ever have a problem with the ladies? Why does wisest man that ever lived, 300 wives, 700 concubines, stupidest man that ever lived, but the wisest. I have to live with this contrast, right? And when you read more and more about this guy and you read his book, Ecclesiastes, and you read the other, you start to understand. He started in one place. He ended in another place. But at the same time, the Bible says you have to be a man of one wife, right? At this time, was it very common for men to have more than one wife? Frankly, if you go around the world, it's pretty common today. You go to Africa, very common. And they have some traits even in the Presbyterian churches there, like they ask guys if they're being ordained to the pastorate, you know, you can only, have, you can only keep one of these wives because they've got like six or ten. These are the changes that are sweeping through the world. But it is a morally inferior position, even in Scripture, to have more than one wife. Even Samuel's father had more than one wife, and it caused him nothing but trouble. Abraham didn't have more than one wife, but he took his wife's servant as a concubine, and it caused him nothing but trouble. Jacob married the one sister, then he worked seven more years to marry the other sister, and it caused him nothing but trouble and consternation in his family. David even broke the rule, had several wives, and the children went to war against each other, and the sword never left his house. And so to stay away from the danger and the horror that comes from breaking this specific principle of Scripture, the Bible makes very clear, if you're going to serve in any capacity in the church, one wife. Uh, why am I bringing that up? Nobody here has more than one wife. Because it's coming. There's already a state in the United States that it's legal to have more than one wife. The TV shows love it, they eat it up. It's coming sooner or later, somebody's going to walk in here and they're going to be breaking this rule. How's this church going to react? I don't know. I don't know what to do about it, frankly. But one thing I know, they can't serve in any office in the church. 
An overseer must be above reproach. What's reproach? If you've got a big problem, if you've got a big reproachable problem, you know, that's preclusive. Sober-minded, self-controlled. We all know the difference between self-controlled and got to be controlled by the rest, right? How many of you got kids? You know the difference between self-controlled kid and the kid you got to control? Well, that kid can't be an elder. <laughs> Hospitable, able to teach. Now, this comes up a lot. The elder, I'm telling you, it's not what most of the churches that I talk with and the pastors I get together with around here think it is. They think it's somebody that never teaches but is a great accountant. Who's a good bean counter and administrator and organizer, right? Yeah, that's not in the Bible. Able to teach, they mean that it is commanded that if they're going to be ordained an elder, they can preach and teach Christian theology. They don't mean teaching carpentry or math, right? Only the guys that teach. The elder position is a spiritual and not a carnal position. In other words, it doesn't matter what you can do outside of the church. If inside the church you can't preach and teach, you can't be an elder because it's a spiritual position for the spiritual oversight and the well-being and the nourishment of the congregation, the sheep, and that's pretty much all it is. Every once in a while, you get a guy that wants to be in the office because they want the power. They want the control, you know? And then they get into the office, and there's a bunch of other elders there, and they find out they can't do anything. The reason they can't do anything is because everything requires a vote of all of those elders, and you're quickly disabused at the idea that there's any power there at all. It is completely an office of the service of the people, where you bow down to them and you make sure that their spiritual well-being and nourishment needs are met. It is a service position, not a kingship. Now, if you've gone to other churches and you've seen this, this kind of a thing where there's a cabal of people that are ruling a church, so to speak, almost always those things go down in flames. It's a terrible and unbiblical situation, but at the same time, that does not deal with the moral, spiritual, and, and uh, uh, scriptural needs of any specific people. So they must be able to teach. Now, many of you have noticed the distinction between deacons and elders. In the qualifications, it's basically that one line. There's not a line in deacons that says, must be able to teach. Generally, deacons teach, and they teach well. And they also must have these same qualifications in regard to spirituality and manner of life, what we call faith and practice. But it's not required to be a deacon that you teach. For an elder, it's pretty much the full job. Why have a pastor then? Well, hopefully your pastor is doing a good enough job that he can't teach everybody. Hopefully he's doing a good enough job that there are so many people that need spiritual nutrition that they can't possibly do it alone. And so many people are necessary to carry the spiritual weight of the congregation. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now, I got kids, so I got to be careful on this one. Uh, here's something that's a contemporary thing. Many of you have grappled with this. Does it mean adult children that have moved out of the house and moved on with their lives? 
Or does it mean children under his household and under his care that he could easily correct and is usually bigger than? Think about it, right? If somebody is in the ministry and their adult child who's 30 or 40 years old gets into trouble or starts to walk away from the faith, does that preclude them from meaningful ministry in the church? Well, let me tell you that the basic judgment of history has been that's also not what this passage means. The passage means your children right in front of you are running amok and acting a mess and you're not doing anything to correct them. You're not managing your household well. Your adult children that move off and you've raised them in the faith and now they have to make their own decisions, some of which may be difficult decisions or that try and that test your faith. I'm sorry, but they're not children in your house anymore. It's not usually taken to be in a disqualification from ministry. Sometimes if you have many children, there will be a variety of them and some will walk in the faith and some won't, right? God generally gives us an accommodation that our children will stay with us in the faith, but he does not give us an absolute promise from which there is no deviation. So I'm just telling you there's many ways you can take this passage. You'll read different ministers and different theologies taking it different ways, but the idea that every child that a person has will stay in the faith or they're disqualified from ministry is not a historic reading of this passage. It's not. And you can't get out of that by just never having kids. That's not... (laughs) He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So there's another qualification. How, how recent is recent? Well, you know it when you see it, don't you? The thing about it being recent, not only because they will become puffed up, but also recent doesn't know much. You have to really know and understand the scriptures and the theology of the church to serve the people in this way, don't you? So recent, you're still in the incubation period You're a biscuit in the oven, but you're not quite brown yet. You need to be patient with the process and grow into it. You need to study the scriptures to the place where when you're tested, you'll know how to give a good answer, right? If somebody asks you a pretty reasonably easy question on scripture and you don't know the answer, you need more study because the questions only get harder, right? So take into account this idea that it is an office deeply tied to the knowledge of Scripture itself. Now, all of this passage implies the knowledge of Scripture isn't enough. Knowing a lot's not enough, but it's the basic minimum. Let me say that again, okay? There's a basic minimum for anything, right? Knowing Scripture, being knowledgeable and intelligent, knowing what this book says is the minimum. If you don't have that, you don't have anything in regard to being an elder, right? But it's not enough, The being kind and the being self-controlled and the being willing to help others, hate to say it, but being a people person, that kind of thing, is all tied up in this office. You can go down to the seminary, even like Reformed Theological Seminary down there, it has a great reputation, and meet a hundred guys that have vast intellect and doctorates and degrees as long as my arm, but could never pastor a church and probably never be an elder. Why do they teach theology then? Because they love the Lord and they want to serve him, but they're not called to this kind of thing. Knowing a lot is not enough. Then it says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. Isn't that an interesting one? 
Now, the outsiders, they don't get a vote. So the people inside just have to make a judgment on whether or not this person is well-regarded by outsiders. In other words, if they have a horrible reputation out there, they can't be an elder in here. Your reputation in the world is usually the produce of your actions and interactions with people, right? So this isn't a strange thing. Then it says this, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued. What's double-tongued? Saying one thing to this person, another thing to this person. That kind of a thing, that kind of survive. How many of you watch Survivor on television? I've been to a few churches where there were basically an episode of Survivor. You guys ever seen that? <laughs> They're getting ready to vote somebody off the island. Glad I have that immunity idol. <laughs> Excuse me. Not addicted to much wine. Now, not being addicted to enough wine doesn't just mean wine. It doesn't even just mean drugs. It's, it's an all-encompassing rule of having a lack of ability to control oneself in regard to things in general. So it's not just about wine. As a matter of fact, it can't be the rule, he may never drink wine, right? Because we know that they did in Jesus' time, right? He made 600 gallons of wine at the wedding. Too much wine, the person that drinks too much wine is remarkably different from the person that just drinks some. And the person that takes in too much of anything and can't uh, control themselves in regard to anything in this world is the kind of person that's too subject to their own appetites and desires to serve the people in that way. Now, this is for deacons. They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Uh, So it is saying they have to know theology. This idea that deacons are supposed to be the custodians of the church, you won't get any of that from the Bible. It's not about that at all. They're men of the word of God, but they're also men of the people. They take care of the poor. They take care of usually the rudiments of taking care of the church and making decisions in regard to its well-being. But especially, they interact with the people on a daily basis and take care of their provisional needs. That is a spiritual thing, not a carnal thing. If they don't know the word... They won't last long. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. So it says the same things, basically, as it does for elders. Why is there a difference? You know? If they're both serving in offices, why does it say basically the same qualifications? Shouldn't the elders have much higher qualifications and the deacons have much lower qualifications? Actually, that's not true at all. The qualifications, the spiritual and moral qualifications are essentially the same. They're just different offices with different roles. They don't have a different qualification or a different calling. They have to be men of the word. If they serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so there's a special blessing there for people that serve in this way. It's a calling of God to serve that extends his kingdom. We've talked many times about the individual person that just goes out and serves God in the world. That's cool and everything. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's not really God's ordained means, which is the church. Generally, in order to teach and that kind of thing, somebody should have some kind of ordination because you've got to serve somebody. That was Bob Dylan, not the Bible. You got to serve somebody. You got to be accountable to somebody. You can't be out there on your own doing your own thing. 
I, I know a lot of people that don't like organized religion. I always ask them the same thing. What do you like, disorganized religion? If your religion is not at least as organized as your bathroom, you've got an issue. You need to organize some stuff. There's an organization in scripture and we bring that. You know, we've been doing the uh, uh, new membership class and uh, a lot of people really surprised by how many bad things I told them about the church. You got to tell people, right? There's a whole world out there. And so I explained to them things like specific positions that this church worldwide has on specific issues that will be of interest to them. And they should know what those are before they join. Because it's not a community of one. It's not even a community of one church. So we go over the things that are hot button issues in the world that might have already preclusively been decided by this church in history, and those positions are not going to change. If you want to change it, it might take you a generation or two or three because Presbyterians are slow. So we went over things like, you know, uh, one of the things in regard to these, uh, this denomination has never ordained a woman as a pastor. As far as I can see it, it will never happen in my lifetime if a woman is joining the church and that might be of interest to her, I want to tell them now so they understand that and don't get mad about it six months from now when they find out, right? So those are the kind of things that need to be known about the general culture of the church and the theology of the church beforehand. And frankly, that means some people will come and some people will leave. But better that a person leave for a perfectly good reason than join for a perfectly bad reason, right? So in going into this, there will also not be elders. And that's okay. Because the church's interpretation of these specific passages in regard to pastors and elders, it's been the same way for 500 years. It's a community that extends outside these doors, and we don't get to decide everything for ourselves inside these doors, right? But choosing the specific people that do these roles that's given to this church by God. The reason I'm going over these things is our election is coming up in just a couple of weeks. Gene, was I supposed to announce an election today? A congregational meeting? Or are we doing that next week? We haven't decided what day it was yet. We will probably have an election <laughs> in two Sundays. Not this one, but the next one. Uh, so, of course, we need to announce the people that are nominated for that and that have been approved by the session. It's kind of a two-part process, very similar to the American government, which was based upon the Presbyterian form of church government, in which there are nominations, uh, and then there's a, a, an analysis given by the session, and then those people are put forth for an election by every member of the congregation. And so you really do directly choose the leadership that God is going to put over you. Now, when those happen, and they will within the next couple of weeks, I expect every one of those guys to be elected. I doubt if there will be a single vote against anybody. But it is important to know that you could if you thought you had to. You could, if you thought you had to, vote for or against based on your judgments and the wisdom that God has given you in regard to these things. It's an important thing. You might, you might have never even heard of an election in which every vote didn't count. Or perhaps an election in which, you know, an election was stolen. <laughs> no, <I'm just> 
or in which, you know, everybody didn't get to vote, or they didn't get but, you know, in the church, your vote is an expression of your personal power as a member of God's church in history. I want you to think about this. Do you remember when Jesus said these strange things about whatever you do on earth will be done in heaven? Do you remember that line? It's an interesting line, right? Protestants especially grapple with it because we know it doesn't mean what Roman Catholics say it means, but we're not sure what it means, Right? But there's other places, like in the book of Revelation, where there's a great scroll that's brought out, and people's names are on it. It's called the roll of the Lamb's Book of Life, and names are written in, and names are blotted out. Well, let me tell you what the classic theology of the church is. That roll is the rolls of the church. And there's a book in heaven with names on it. And the identity and relationship between the role on earth and the role in heaven is an interesting debate among the theologians. But it does neatly tie in with the idea that some of the things that are written on earth are binding in heaven. And some of the things that are written in heaven are binding on earth. So that even though we have fallible roles and we have only a visible church, there is a real book It is a physical thing that the angels themselves hold in their hands and I would like for your name to be on it so that when we meet the Lord on that day, we're not put to shame so that our names aren't blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. Lord God, you are a great God to us. We pray, Lord God, that you would gather us in in such a way as that we would know you and in knowing you, know life that you would fill our hearts with the joy and the peace of knowing you through worship and praise, but also just knowing that you are a good God who loves his children. And we thank you for this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Your next song is preparative for the Lord's Supper. Is in your order of service.
God, our Father, as we gather together to eat this meal with you, Lord, we pray that you would set these elements apart from a common to a sacred. We thank you for this blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When you're ready, please come forward and receive the elements. This is a family meal where Jesus draws together his people to eat with him. But also in a very spiritual way, we feed on the benefits of the body and blood of the Lord. It's not without reason that he drew us to this specific analogy of eating him, knowing that it would offend us viscerally. And at the same time, it is the perfect analogy for us to understand what he does for us. He doesn't always only save us for the next life or for the resurrection, but he's actively saving us now. He's giving us the spiritual nutrition that we need on a day-by-day basis. And so one of the ways that he does that is we take this bread representing his body and we chew on it, we break it with our teeth and it goes down into our stomach and it feeds our soul. Uh, It's not without reason that God designed us in such a way is that if we don't eat, we die. If we don't drink, we die. We need it every day. And so this meal has been designed by God to teach us deep and spiritual things. Verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread He broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
take and eat. In the same way, also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Lord God, that you have fed us, that we are sated, Lord God. We are filled with all good things in you. That even though our bodies, Lord God, use this food and it's diminished unto us and it becomes part of our marrow and our blood and our bone, you, Lord God, build up our spirit in such a way as that we're filled with light and hope and joy. And we thank you for this great promise given to your children in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's just rise and sing the last verse and chorus of uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, which is in your order of service. to the throne room of God to participate in the glories that you have there. We thank you, Lord God, for your grace and your mercy for all good gifts that you give your children. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. May the Lord your God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.
but I didn't bring all that gear. Yeah. <laughs> 